Good evening. My name is Carol and I am an alcoholic. Yeah. Hi, Zoom. Okay. Oh, someone's waving at me. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Glad you're and here. I'm great. First of all, I'd like to thank Anna for inviting me to come and participate in your meeting tonight. I'm one of those alcoholics who truly believe it is an honor and a privilege to be asked to participate in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, Melissa is stepping up. You know, one thing I say about Alcoholics Anonymous before I tell you my story is that it has given me a life that sometimes I don't, I can't even believe it. You know, this COVID thing going on, everyone's been having a horrible time. I've been having the time of my life. You know, I went to speak someplace and this guy took a liking to me. He texted me for a year before COVID to go out. And I finally went out with him and said, you know, can you see I'm too old for you? And he goes, yeah, I know how old you are. You want to go see the Joker? And I said, sure. That was three years ago. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and he's still like a, he's like a large five-year-old. All he wants to do is go have fun. And so this weekend we were out in Yuma. His, Tim will appreciate this. His, what Mick Jagger is to me, Rhonda Vincent is to him. And she's a bluegrass singer from someplace in the South. And, you know, go to Yuma, Arizona to hear a bluegrass singer was not on the top of my list, but he wanted to go. So we went and it was probably one of the best concerts I've ever, ever been to. And we were camped out at the Colorado River and one of our, my sponsors came with me who was going to be our speaker. And she has relatives there and wanted to stay as it stay, you know. Alcoholics Anonymous is full of people who love service. Someone will step up to the plate. And that was you, Melissa. I really thank you for that. But, you know, when you were talking about your brother getting out of jail, I wasn't going to talk about this, but it just came to mind. We get out there on Thursday and, uh, you know, we just cruised around. And yesterday, we just decided to look at Zuma, Yuma. And we went to the Yuma Territorial Prison. And I have never seen anything like that. I mean, you talk about inhumane treatment of people. This is an old one in the 1800s or whatever. And the treatment they gave those people. And as most of us who have been around here know, a lot of people in prison are there motivated by alcohol. And you see these cells that are just caves with three tier deckers, six people in a cell where there's not even room for one person to stand up in the heat of Yuma, just dark and dreary. And I walked away from there thinking, my God, the way we've treated each other in this lifetime. And unfortunately, sometimes some of that's still going on now, except in Alcoholics Anonymous. Here, we welcome everybody. Everybody, we're one of the same. No one's any, the, the highest elevation we get here is sober. And that's period. And so Zach, James, welcome. I hope you find here what I have found here because I'm having a lot of fun. Anyway, um, I'm an alcoholic. I have a sobriety date, it's February 16th, 1982. And if I behave myself in 10 days, I'll be sober 40 years. And I, no one is more amazed at that than I am. I am bloody amazed at that because I know what goes on in his head. And one of the gifts that AA has given me is the art of remembering. And I believe in cellular memory because I know I have it. And when I was in that prison walking around, I remember exactly how I felt and how I thought in those days. And I mean, to go from there to here tonight is only through divine intervention, through nothing else. And the divine intervention has come from one alcoholic talking to another. People who have cared more about my sobriety and my recovery than my opinion or my feelings, you know? And that's what I hope you find is somebody who will drag you to the altar of gratitude that they have me. I remember 
by 1981. I was living in Lahaina, Maui. <clears throat> I was all that. I love how you say that I was all that. I had a, I was drinking out of control. I had a little house. The reason I had a little house on Front Street with a swimming pool, it's because my alcoholic boyfriend, my alcoholic drug addict, drug dealer boyfriend had kicked me out because of my drinking. Now that's embarrassing when you're kicked out by a drug addict, alcoholic for your drinking. And I landed a job where I worked for a man who was the president of the Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, I part of my street with a pool. And I had a red Mustang convertible that I drove and I had designed clothes. And, you know, life was good. So I thought, but I was drinking with the wrong people. They were the right people at the time, but they were the wrong people. And I got into a lot of trouble. And when I get in trouble, there's only two things I'll do. I'll either hit you or I leave. And so I hopped on a plane. I went back to Massachusetts to my mom's house. I was on, I was running away one more time. And when I left Hawaii, I mean, there been a lot of whispers about my drinking, but I always knew that drinking was the solution. It's not the problem. I know why all you people are having a problem with me. I think my drinking's just fine, but apparently a lot of my friends and family don't think so. And I never could really understand why I felt the way I felt when they would look at me and ask me that question. I'm sure a lot of you have been asked that question. What is wrong with you? Why do you do what you do? Why do you act like you? I have no answer to that. All I want to say is mind your own damn business. Leave me alone, you know? And so I'm back in Massachusetts and I'm on the wagon. You know, the vehicle with the wheels fall off when you're not paying attention? That wagon. And I was as dry as toast. I was so sad trying to act as if. You know, when they say come to AA and they say act as if, I know all about acting as if. I acted as if, as if all my life. <clears throat> and I'm acting like I'm a good daughter to my little Irish mom. I told her I didn't drink. And, you know, she asked me why I was home for so long. And I said, well, I just really wanted to spend some time with you. I didn't want to tell her that the heat was on in Hawaii, you know, and uh, I'm not drinking. And I'm pretending the whole time. And, of course, when I was there for about a week, maybe two, 10 days, I get, the, I get the phone call. I've been fired from the job, evicted from the house. The car had been repossessed. My boyfriend already had a new girlfriend. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when you feel like that and your whole world falls apart, and then you're devastated. There's only one thing left to do, and that's drink. But I told mom I didn't drink. So what am I going to do? I start the sneaky drinking. First, I get a half pint, and I sneak it up to my room. This is in Boston. It's November. Getting to be Christmas. Cold. You know the weather. Then I, the half pint goes into a pint. And then it turns into a quart. Then it turns into a half gallon. And it's cold, and it gets dark early. So I'm going to bed at 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock. Three o'clock, I'm going up to bed earlier and earlier so I can go up and drink. And I'm hiding this from my mom. I'm hiding it from everyone because I don't drink according to them. And I never wanted to forget Christmas Eve. You know, good little Irish Catholic family. We all went to midnight mass. Then the neighbors came over and they were having their brandy and coffee. But I don't drink. So I went up to my room and I had a stash up there and I drank the night away. And I came to the next day with the bottles everywhere. I was chain smoking in those days, cigarette holes in my mom's beautiful comforter, you know, and the phone upside down. You know, this is 1981, so there was no call forwarding or couldn't tell who you called. And I just knew I was probably calling that boy that I had a crush on in the third grade that lived in Chicago at three o'clock in the morning. You know how we do that, that drunk dialing. And I looked at that and I thought, I gotta go. I, I, I can't let mom see me act like this. And so I made plans to leave. 
and I'm not drinking and I'm as dry as toast, like I said. And on January 4th, which is my natal birthday, I left. And I got to Hawaii sometime in February. I often said, I don't remember every place I went, but I do know I went to New York, to Miami, to California, to Honolulu, all on somebody else's dime, of course. And my luggage had fallen apart. Everything I owned was in two shopping bags. I had no place to go, but I'm an alcoholic. I'll figure it out. And I get to Honolulu. I have about 25 bucks in my pocket. And I think, what am I going to do now? And I'm sitting there thinking. And there used to be a sign here, think, think, think. I know that one. And then you'd have a sponsor say, don't think. She's wrong. I was thinking. And I remember this woman I used to drink with, my friend Mary, who was really a tacky drinker. And she had her last drink at my house, and I kicked her out. I told everyone I kicked her up because she smoked and I was afraid she'd burn my little house down. But the fact of the matter is I went home and she drank all my booze. I kicked her ass right out the door, careless where she landed. And she had landed in this place called St. Francis Women's Alcoholic Treatment Center. And I thought, I wonder if she's still over here. So I went to the telephone. I don't know if you people know about telephone booths in the big book, your phone, put money in, you dial it, you know. And I called her and she was home. And I told her I was in Honolulu. I was thinking about seeing how she was doing. And she was so happy to hear from me. And would you believe she, they were having her one-year anniversary in AA? And they were having a little event for her. Would I like to go? I'll sleep at the airport or go to the party? Of course I'll go. So I took the bus down to Waikiki. And we off we went to her one-year celebration. And when we got there, all the counselors are paying all this attention to me, which they should because... Had I not kicked her out, this whole event never would have happened. I do deserve the credit. This is how I think. And they are saying things to me, nothing about drinking, but if I wanted to find a different way of living. If I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, I could not understand how they knew how exhausted I was. But you see, I have an education. I'm smart. And I know drinking isn't the problem. I have issues. That's what I have. I have issues. I need a husband. I need some money. I need a place to live. I need a car. I have issues. I don't know this nonsense about my drinking. But, you know, I don't know what to do. So anyway, she, we went back to her condo. And it was President's Day weekend. And she was going away for the weekend. And she gave me the keys to her condo. And she said, you know, whatever you want to do is up to you. But come Monday, you're gone. Whether you go into that treatment center, you go someplace else, you're gone. And off she went, leaving me the keys to her condo in Waikiki. Well, it's Friday for God's sake. You know, Monday's a long way away. And I'm thinking again, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to be an alcoholic. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm smart. I know if I go in that treatment center, I'm going to have a label next to my name for the rest of my life, alcoholic. And I know I'm predestined to be rich and famous someday. And I don't want the tabloids to get a hold of that alcoholic. Mind you, I'm homeless and I don't even know it. And I'm concerned about, is that a clue that I belong here? <laughs> so, so I don't want to be an alcoholic. And I remembered I had other friends in Hawaii, so in Honolulu, so I called them. And we sailed the next day. Beautiful Hawaiian day, sailed all day long. They drank, I did not drink. Alcohol is not my problem. Next day was Valentine's Day. And in Hawaii, they celebrate in the park. It's the food, the music, the fun, grandma, the dogs, the cats. Everyone's there having a wonderful time. I went and I didn't drink. Yeah, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't know what this problem is. But the next day was Sunday. And, you know, I grew up in a Boston Irish family where there was a lot of abuse. You know, there was a lot of things that happened in that family that I should never have been witness to. They were done to me, by me, with me. And I'm not complaining, I'm just reporting that as a result of that, I was a little bit twisted. I really was in my perception of what life should be. 
And, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, and on Sundays, I get, I get this hole inside me. I've never belonged anywhere. I've never belonged to anyone. As I said, it's been my whole life acting as if, but that hole and that loneliness just hits me. I just choke on it. And when you feel like that, if you're an alcoholic like I am, there's only one thing left to do, and that's drink, right? So I go to my favorite watering hole. And this is like I said, 40 years ago, I was still pretty hot then. And I walked into the bar and I looked around and I could find an alcoholic man anywhere. I found a merchant marine up in the corner and he came right on over. And uh, I told him I was thinking about moving to Honolulu and he thought that was a grand idea. So he had a couple of drinks, we had a couple of drinks, then he took me to the movies, then to dinner. Then to entice me to move to Honolulu, he took me up to Tantalus to show me the city lights of Honolulu. And on the way up, he stopped and he bought a bottle of burgundy wine my drink of choice in those days, took the cap off, threw it away, and handed it to me. And up to Tamas we went. And I drank that entire half gallon all by myself. He didn't drink. He was over in the corner smoking his joints, having his own trip. And I drank that half gallon. And I never want to forget how I felt. I was so, so sad. Bewildered, confused fear and desperation. I had no labels for the feelings I had. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they call them the full horsemen. I was just riddled with this. How did I end up like this? I'm somebody. I'm not a nobody. I have an education. I've, I've sailed with the, the Atlantic and the Pacific. I've sailed with the Rockefellers and, and, and Teddy Turner. I'm not a nobody. How did I end up like this? I was so, so sad. Long distance is hanging up on me. I had run out of everybody. I had run out of every people, places, and things. I had no place to go. And so the next day, the next morning, when he dropped me off, I took the bus up Lily House Street and I checked myself into St. Francis Women's Alcoholic Treatment Center. Not because I was an alcoholic. It was the only place offered that I could lay my head. I went in there just until I could figure out a deal, until I could figure out one more thing that I could get out of this, because alcohol is not my problem. So I checked myself in, and I'll tell you, it was the saddest group of women I have ever in my life come across. <laughs> I looked at them, and all I could think about is angel of death, just come down and shoot me now. I mean, what am I doing here with these people? You know, the old white ones and brown ones and yellow ones and rich ones and poor ones. Oh, my God, you know. And they finally show me to my room and I go to my little room and I want to sleep for about a week. I am so sick from drinking that half gallon of burgundy. And I've been up in my little room. And the next thing I know, the bell goes off. Any treatment center people here? <laughs> bell goes off, ringy, dingy, dingy, all gather in the lobby. And we're going to go to an AA meeting. I'm not going. I know all about AA. Bulbous nosed old men chanting, waiting to die. Boy, have they raised the level when I look around this room. <laughs> but that was my feeling then, and I'm not going. And my friend Mary said, you have to go, otherwise you can't stay here. And so in my shopping, my two shopping bags, I had one designer outfit left. As Melissa said, I'm all that. I had one designer outfit left, so I put it on. It was a green felt hat with a big peacock feather, identical green velour jacket, Calvin Klein jeans and designer jeans were brand new in knee boots. And off I go to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am so hot there. All these greeters at the door, hugging and kissing and rubbing up against, so happy to see me. I wanted to throw up on them. I was not so happy to see them. And why I was so hot is because it was about 99 degrees out, but I wore it anyway. And I get into this meeting. And all the inmates come to the front row where they belong. And I stay by the back door in case I want to make my getaway. And this woman gets up to share. Her name is Mary Lake. 
And she is up at the podium telling stories that no decent woman would tell her best friend in private. And she's telling a room full of people and they're all clapping and cheering. Right, Amalia, you're a winner. And I'm back and going, that woman has no greeting whatsoever, you know. And the next guy gets up to speak and he's Big Richard. And this guy is huge and he speaks pigeon. And he drives a garbage truck for a living and he was fired. And the family moved out from him and he was fired from his job and he robbed petty cash. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at this guy going, my God, I don't want what they have. Not at all. I danced after that treatment center. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't want to belong to them. I saw the differences and none of the similarities. But every time I talk, I have to stop and tell you that before I left Hawaii, those two people became my heroes. You know, Michaeline, my beautiful Michaeline always says the best presents come in ugly wrappings. You never know what's on the inside, you know. And I got my nurse's license back and I was working at Kuakini Hospital and Mary's husband, Harry, was dying of cancer. And Mary and Harry started the first treatment center in Honolulu, Hinamaka. And he was dying. And Mary moved into the solarium with her futon and she did step work all around his chemotherapy. And I was the only nurse, Caucasian nurse at the time. All the little Filipino nurses and Japanese nurses were just kind of wondering, what, who are these people? You know, Big Richard would show up every night after me, the rest of those hoodlums to Harry's room. And I saw what Alcoholics Anonymous looked like. I saw how they lived, not what they were saying, but how they were living. And of course, at the time, I didn't realize the impact it made on me because I'm defrosting little bit by little bit by little bit. And uh, after the first meeting, I'm never going to go back. And the bell goes off the next day and I go to go to a meeting. I'm not going. And my friend Mary says, we get to go in the van tonight. Yep, we do. We get to go in the van. I can get cigarettes, whatever. Right. And so I get in the van. I get my cigarettes. And I'm going to sleep this one out. But this time we pull into Wailai Kahala, which is the Gucci meeting. And on the way in, there's two uh, Rolls Royces and a Mercedes. Now that's a program of attraction, right? Hey, yeah. <laughs> and I look upstairs and I see all these handsome men like Tip with their suit coats on and long pants, smoking their cigarettes. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll try one more, you know, just one more. <laughs> my God created me. He knows exactly how to get my attention. And I walked into the meeting that night, got my peacock feather all adjusted. And here at the podium was blonde hair and blue eyes, the handsomest man I have ever seen. And love, love at first sight. I knew I was sentenced to AA to marry him. That's exactly why I'm here. And he was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was at meetings seven nights a week. I was there with him. Steps to Freedom became his home group. Steps to Freedom became my home group. Wherever he went, I went. I'm living proof if you bring the body, the brain might follow. And, and I was on a mission to get this guy. I really was. And I would just listen. But you know, like you, sitting out there, you know, there's not much conversation going on. There's nothing really left to do but listen. And as people like, would be standing up here at the podium like I am tonight, they would be saying things about the, how they felt and things they had done. And I began to defrost. I, I felt like that. Oh, I did that too. They're telling that out loud. And the, they didn't say, no one pointed their finger at me and said, you know what's wrong with you? Why do you do what you do? No one was saying that. They were only talking about what they did. And slowly by slowly by slowly, I was defrosting without even knowing it, not knowing it. I'm at meeting six nights seven nights a week, two on Saturday, two on Sunday, following this guy around. I got a sponsor because, you know, he talked a lot about sponsorship, so I got one. I got Yoshiko, 
Japanese woman who graduated the month before I did from the treatment center who didn't speak a word of English. <laughs> she, was, she went to all the meetings and I mean, I could tell whatever I wanted and not worry about her passing it on. <laughs> you see the head that you're that's talking to you tonight, you know? Anyway, I'm going to these meetings, six, six months I've been doing, I'm so, there's other fish in the sea. I'm not gonna bother with this guy anymore. The heck with him. And that's the night he walks by and he pats me on the head and he says, keep coming back, you're a winner. Now that's a come on, right? I know he's going to So finally, I got a date with this guy. Finally, 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 I got a date with this guy. And I am so relieved. I'm planning our whole life. I don't know if any of you women ever do this. When you meet somebody, you know, he needed a makeover, of course, and a whole new career. Name of our three kids that we're going to have, you know, where we're going to live. I'm planning all this. And the phone rings, and it's my brother telling me my mom died that day of a heart attack. And I thought, God, my mom's not supposed to die and leave me, and I had no money, I'm broke. I'm working as a maid, cleaning toilets, crying the whole time when I was born to have a maid, not be one, you know, I'm just, just crazy, you know? And he came to the door and I thought he would comfort me, but instead of comforting me, he put me in his car and he took me to a meeting out at the North Shore. And those people took up a collection, it was about this size. They took up a collection so I could go back to Massachusetts to my mom's funeral. And you think I would have gotten the message then, but I didn't. I've been using people all my life. What's another group? Of course, it's all about me. Of course, they're going to take care of me. You know, and uh, I'm not a very nice person when I drink. I'll tell you that I am not very, I am self-centered to the core. And I went to um, the airport when he took me to the airport. And I said to him, you know, my mom's quite prominent. It's going to be a big Irish wake. I'm going to have to have something to drink. And he looks at me and says, you don't drink if your ass falls off. What the hell's wrong with you? You know, he made me mad. I'm standing here to tell you that my defects of character that was so bad out there are the very thing that kept me sober. I'll show you. That's my whole mantra, my whole life. I'll show you. And so I went back to Massachusetts and I conducted myself like a lady and I came back to Honolulu thinking he'd be at the airport with an engagement ring, maybe, perhaps, you know. But instead, he had a big book and a schedule of meetings. And he told me that he really cared about me, but he didn't want, me to, didn't want to watch me kill myself get a program, get a sponsor, get a life. I was outraged. Here I am an orphan for God's sakes, abandoned at the airport and I so, so sad. And I went home and I went from the couch to the bed, drinking tea, crying the whole time. And finally when the tears started to dry up a little bit, my favorite emotion, anger came back and I'll show him. And so all the sober clothes went out the door and the hunting clothes came back. You know, hunting clothes cut down in here, slid up there. You know, here I am in AA, all dressed up at the meeting so he can see what he's missing out on. And while, I, I, while I'm busy glaring him so he can see what he's missing out on, they have elections. And this woman next to me puts my hand up and I'm the literature chairperson. I don't want to be the damn literature person. I don't want to have anything to do with you people. But in those days, you had to take everything home. And they handed me this wrap that was disgusting. It was sticky, it had coffee stains, and all the literature had coffee stains and jelly donut stains all over. I was embarrassed for you. You had no, you had no breeding whatsoever to have something like this. So I took the, the rack home, threw all the literature out because it was all teared and whatever. You threw it all out, sanded it, painted it, and went down to central office and I bought every bit of literature they had and I had it alphabetized and color coded. <laughs> and I had the display for the AA, for the literature announcement. Now it's time for the literature announcement. Five minutes I'd be up there. I'd be reading things. <laughs> Just so he could see what he was missing. You know, and 
I was crazy as a bed bug. And no one said anything about me except you're doing a great job. You're wonderful, you know. And, God, you know. and there was a woman in the meeting, you know, the woman. You know, you've all seen them sitting in the front row, all perfectly manicured, just well-dressed with all the sponsees around her, you know, and they're all pink and white. And how was so happy to be sober, you know, <laughs> <laughs> multiplying like rabbits every week. <laughs> and she turns around and looks at me and asks me that damn question. What is wrong with you? You keep showing up here and you're getting goofier by the day. What is your problem? I was ready to hit her. But there were too many witnesses, so I didn't. And she's blah, 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 blah. And I'm waiting for her to stop because I'm going to let her have it. And as soon as she stops talking, I'm going to let her have it. And these words fly out of my mouth. Yes, ma'am. Meet me at Coco's the next day. Okay, I did. And I met Blanche. And she looked at me. She said, you know, apparently your life isn't working out too well. I've been watching you. Why don't you come follow me around for about 90 days? And let's see if things will change. And if they're not better, you can go along your merry way. And the first thing we're going to do is read the first 164 pages of the big book. And she did that. And she told me I'd been around here long enough that I could go home and write my fourth step. What do you mean write my fourth step? She said, write your fourth step. Here's the instructions. Well, in that family I was raised in, I came with three things, that my three rules of life. The first one is never, ever, ever tell anybody anything. Never, ever, ever trust anyone because they will betray you. And never, ever, ever let anyone know how you feel because you're always fine. Those are the three things that I live by. And she wants me to go home and write down where I've been and who I've been with and things I've done. Wrong. I'm not doing it. My whole mind, the whole thing about me is I'm not, no. Divine intervention every step of the way. I was curious. I got curious because every time I called her with my issues, she just said, writing and she'd hang up on me. Everyone thought she was such a nice woman. She wasn't, she was a real bitch. She didn't really care about me at all. <laughs> Are you writing? Are you writing? You know, and I got curious. I got curious. So I went home and I lived alone and I did my fourth step. I did my fourth step under the covers in bed with a flashlight writing. And I remember asking her, where do I start? She said, how about when you were born? And I started writing things down that I was never going to tell anybody ever, ever, ever. Things that I had done, things that were done to me, things I was thinking about doing. I wrote it all down. And next I put an A next to it if alcohol was involved. And I looked at it. I wrote it. There's magic when you put pen to paper. Not the computer. Not typing away, pen to paper, magic happens. And I looked at that and I could no longer edit it and deny it because I wrote it and that, there it was. And I'm not telling anybody this where I've been and what I've done. I'm not telling her. But if then, as gracious as she was, she, just, she set aside a day for me to do my fifth step. I'm not doing it. She said, No, I'll call with my issues. Click, I'll be there. <laughs> she shows up to my house. And at the time, I'm living out in Pololo. And this particular day, there was a double rainbow looking out over the mountains. And she showed up at my house with this big bouquet of flowers, beautiful flowers, the torch ginger, the orchids, the plumeria. And out of nowhere, she took out this little white candle and she lit it. And she said, let's get on our knees and ask God, say the third step prayer and ask God to come into the room and help you be honest. And I got on my knees and I said, the third step prayer. I prayed to a God I did not believe in, did not believe in. And I sat on the couch and all of a sudden I opened up like a faucet. I told her all my secrets, all my fears, all my guilt, all my resentments. They just poured out of me, just poured out of me. Magic happens. Absolute magic happens. One alcohol, 
talking to another. And I never wanted to get that face looking back at me. She didn't run out of the room screaming. She shared some things with me, said that perhaps there might be things left unsaid to sit there with God and, for, and uh, meet her to, that night at Coco's. And I met her that night at Coco's and there were some things left unsaid that we talked about. And that is the day I walked freedom from bondage. I am free ever since. I never realized how tightly wrapped I was. And all of a sudden I felt like everything just fell off. It just fell off me. That, that, that burden of guilt and remorse and fear just fell right off me. But I wasn't really spiritual. You know, and she told, I was planning on moving back to the mainland. She said, you have to do the rest of your steps before you go. So I'm not going to do them, whatever. She says, do them. And she explained to me that defect, we're having our defects of character removed. We're doing those things we shouldn't be doing over and over and over again. You know, like stealing, going out with other people's husbands, you know, things like that. We should not be doing those things. And shortcomings where we should start doing the things we should be doing. You know, like show up on time, stop stealing, you know, write the thank you notes, do the things, be of service, get a commitment, be of service. All right, all right, all right, you know. And then I went to her with my list because I was getting ready to leave. And she looked at my list and she looked at it and she said, somebody missing on here. I said, who's missing? She said, your ex-husband's not on here. Oh, I looked at I said, did you hear what he did to me? What's wrong with you? He owes me an amend. Ah, uh, no. And she looked at me very lovingly and said, you know, Carol, if I lived with you then, I probably would have slapped you around too. Put him on the list. You know? <laughs> I couldn't do it. I was so full of rage and anger at him. I couldn't do it. And she would take me out to lunch and she'd say, she asked me these questions, like, what kind of a wife were you? How much money did you steal from him? Were you faithful? What kind of a home did you provide for him? Bringing that mirror right up to my face that I had no answer for but I still couldn't do it. And she insisted that I get the steps done before I left and I had to do the worst one first and I couldn't do it. So she sat down with me and wrote out my amends, wrote it out. She said, call him and read this. So I called him, he was in Miami, I'm in Honolulu. And I read and said, hi, this is Carol, your ex-wife. Ha ha, I'm, I'm the sober member of AA, I have to read this to you. And I read that amends <laughs> to him not meaning one single solitary word, not one word that I, not one. But you know, in AA, we're taught it's not what we think, it's not what we feel, it's what we do. And I did it. And one more time, something happened, divine intervention, a crack of something came through. And, you know, we started talking. And he always wanted to get back together again. He was my soulmate. He was my soulmate and I was him. I love that man with my whole heart and soul. You know, and I just could not do it. And, you know, he started calling me. And, you know, he was a super athlete, but he also loved opera and he wrote poetry and he started doing all this again and never missed my birthday. I went back to see him and, and he was living in North Carolina at the time and he came out to California and he, was my, he turned out to be my very, very best friend. And when he died 30 years later, it was, everything had been said, everything was done, absolutely clean. I never would have had that without that strict sponsor making me do that amends. The steps were, you know? And my life has been nothing but events like that. I don't know what time it is, I think my clock stopped. Um, but I kept going on like that. The amends that I have made just, you know, it's true, the promises do come true after the ninth step. You have to do the work. Everyone, a lot of people come into AA and they sit in a chair and they think they get a sponsor and they talk about their job, their boyfriend, their love life, their club, whatever they talk about, you know. But until you do the work, you're not going to get the results. 
you know, meetings give you relief. Recovery comes and working the steps. It's that simple. And, uh, you know, I guess coming to meetings, I moved back to the mainland. I've never asked anyone to be my sponsor. I've been appointed to all of them. <laughs> I was appointed to Mary, Mary Regan, and she was a circuit speaker, and she brought me all over and introduced me to the, the giants of AA, the Clancy's, the Keith Carpenter's, the Clint Roach, all of them, you know. And then, you know, she taught me to laugh. No one liked a dirty joke better than she did. She loved to laugh, and she taught me the joy of, of sobriety and brought me to conventions and you know, and then I got Clancy. What happens? I got into a relationship at 10 years sober. You know, the real first sociopath, and I'm not complaining, I'm just reporting the first sociopath I ever met. And he left me broken, absolutely broken, to a point that Lynn Wilder wrapped me up and sent me to Clancy. And that's pretty desperate. He sent me to Clancy. And I became one of the trejets on the 405 going up to the Pacific Group. And I will be forever indebted to Clancy because he taught me the most important thing in that structure and discipline. You do what I do, you'll get what I get. You keep going forward. You know, if you keep going forward and do what you're supposed to be doing, your problems will disappear through neglect. And if you have a sponsor in one hand and a sponsee in the other hand, you don't have another hand to drink. And so it's been. And so I've marched myself into a, almost 40 years of sobriety. And I will tell you, I've had a commitment the whole time. Clancy died, you know. You know, I, Len Wilder was always in the background tell, running my life. He's this big, tall, I don't know if I even knew the big, tall Kentuckian. I met him at my second date meeting. I came here and he decided to run my life without my permission. And he did a real good job of it, to tell you the truth. You know, and uh, I would go to lunch, talk to him at least two or three times a week for 30 years. And the last lunch we went to, we, all, it was great, we always had great lunches. You know, first we'd talk about me as we should. We would talk about him. We would talk about all of you. you know? And we just laugh. I mean, we would go to Nick's down Laguna. We'd have to be in a back booth because, I mean, we'd be there for hours just laughing our head off. You know, once he was supposed to come to Seal Beach when I was the secretary to speak, and we're over across the street having dinner, they had to send somebody over to get me and him, the speaker, to get back to the meeting. We're having so much fun, you know. And, uh, you know, and he told me to call June G. And I did, and June is my sponsor today. And Seal Beach is still my home group. And uh, June keeps me right-sized, absolutely right-sized, you know? And all I can tell you is that the life that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me is beyond anything I've ever known. I've been rich, I've been poor. I've been sick, I've been well. I've been loved, I've been thrown away. I've been hated. I have a mouth that, don't ask me a question, please don't ask me a question because the answer will come out with this. Probably you should know what you want to hear, you know? And, uh, and it's, it's been hard sometimes. You know, sponsors, speakers come up here and they tell you about all the benefits they get from AA, whatever, you know? I still stayed single after that relationship because I realized there was too much work to be done on me to have a good relationship. I brought me with me and it was too much work. And so I put myself into a situation where I went to work I got my nurse's license back and every company I've worked for, I want you to know because of AA applying the principles to the, to what I did at work. I've, I've always gotten every award they have. One job I had, they had to make up new awards for me. And that, I remember the days when they'd be standing at the door with the box going, uh, these are your things by now. You know, none of that happens anymore. But I've become financially independent, not wealthy, but for me, I'm happy. I have a little condo that's paid for. I have a little car that's paid for. But you know, the most important thing I have, the most important thing I have is a quiet mind. You know that mind that's always talking to you? Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. It's them, it's them, it's them. My mind is quiet. I have peace in my soul and I have love in my heart. And you know, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't really. 
you know, along the way, these gals have come up to and asked me to sponsor them. I think, you know who you're talking to. <laughs> okay, and all, I'm not smart enough to come up with anything different. So I just tell them to do what I, what I was told to do. And this, it's, you know, when I, I, I don't know what, when it happened, you know, all of us are so hungry for love. We've gone all over the world looking for love. And I never knew what love was until I looked in the eyes of another human being when I see the light come on. You know, and I see what happens when these people come to me with their broken hearts and their broken lives and their broken dreams. And all I do is tell them, get a spot, get a, a commitment, come to the home group, call me every day. This is what we're going to do, just one after another. And I've accumulated this posse of the most beautiful woman, women in the world. My neighbor next door used to get all dressed up on the second Tuesday of every month because I have a meeting in my house with my sponsees. They all dressed up waiting to see the model convention come through the door. You know, he has a program of attraction for the neighbors too. No one does. <laughs> and, you know, and I, we do everything together. We do everything together. We, we, some of them don't even have a high school diploma and they get, they get their high school diploma, and then they want to go to college, and then they get an AA, then a BA, then an MA, and then some of them have a PhD. They're educated way out of my range, you know, and uh, we go to the birthday parties and whatever, and then they start dating, and that's when the real fun begins. Because, <laughs> oh, the stories of boy meets girl on AA campus. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, but I watch them. I watch them grow out of it, and then they get engaged. And then they get married and we're at the engagement party. We're at the wedding. And I have a rule for every girl I sponsor of childbearing years. You cannot have that baby unless I am in the delivery room. I'm the nurse. I have to be there. Cross your legs. I'm on my way. And so far they've all obeyed. They've all obeyed. And I do that because, you know, we see God everywhere. God has created this most beautiful world. I thought in, in, in Colorado, There's, I see it everywhere we go. But to me, his most perfect creation is a human being. And when you sit there and you watch this goofy guy who's dealing drugs now become a father, you see this little goofy girl holding kids about how many Louis Vuitton purses she can have turn into a mother. And they have this baby. And I'm usually the second one to hold it after it's born. And I check it out. I look at its ears, its nose, its toes. I check it out. And I see absolute perfection. Perfection. And I always have the same thought. And that thought is that's how we all came into this world. Do you know that? We all came in here perfect. We had to learn to lie, to cheat, to steal, to drink, to drug. We had to learn all these things. We just didn't do it naturally. It just We had to learn it. And with strong sponsorship, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, we can unlearn those things and get to the middle of a road and lead a life of, walk the road of happy destiny. You know, as I said, I have a memory that um, brings me back to uh, 40 years ago right now. I remember that. And I remember after I'd done the steps, I still had that literature commitment at uh, a Steps to Freedom. And I remember, I don't know if you were, most of you aren't old enough to remember Hurricane Eva. It was in 1982, about November. And the island was decimated. There wasn't a light on the island. The trees were down. Everything was down. And it was Tuesday night, meeting night. And I never wanted to be that person that they said, you know, she slaked. So I gathered my literature stuff and I put it in my dusty pencil and down the hill I went to the meeting. And it was pitch black. There were no street lights, nothing. And I turned the corner. I looked at the church where Steps to Freedom was. And in the window, there was a white candle. And I looked at that meeting, they were there. AA shows up. And I watched it with my literature. And someone said, oh, yeah. Someone said, oh, you're here. And I heard somebody else say, of course she's here. We, she, we can depend on her. And that is when I realized 
I had a belonging. I belonged to AA. And as a result of that, I started to belong to me. I, I'm okay. I started doing the things that we have to do around here to stay here, like you're doing, Anna. Like you're doing being a secretary. Whoever set it up, whoever made the coffee. You don't realize it, but you're putting a brick in your road to recovery. And for you, James and Zach, get a commitment. These people need you. We need you here because we need to see where we are. And the only way we can see where we are is by seeing the light comes on in you and to see that your life changed for something so much better, you know. And uh, I hope you can, I hope I've conveyed to you the joy of living I have today and that everything I have is a result of alcoholics. So I don't mean, I don't get emotional. I don't know what's wrong with me tonight. Probably tired. And, uh, you know, I look, I look around and I know that I am here living this life I am living because of rooms like this and people like you. And I can live a state in a state of grace and dignity. So I want to thank you.